0: and welcome to Curious Objects. I'm Ben Miller. In a lot of ways, Georgia O'Keeffe's background is pretty unremarkable. She was born in Wisconsin to a family of dairy farmers, one of seven children, decided she wanted to be an artist. She studied at the Art Institute of Chicago and the Art Students League here in New York City. Her breakthrough, if that's the right word for it, came around 1918 when the photographer Alfred Stieglitz took an interest in O'Keeffe's work, and used his resources to exhibit and promote while subsidizing O'Keeffe and of course eventually marrying her that relationship would end in disaster when O'Keeffe discovered her husband was having an affair but that's a story for another day O'Keeffe's frequent subject matter was objects from the natural world which she depicted in stylized and simplified almost schematized ways by the 1920s, she was producing the flower paintings that would come to be associated with her more than anything else. Uh, one of these, White Flower Number no. 1, sold for $44 million at auction in 2014, setting the world auction record for a female artist. In recent days, two important O'Keeffe paintings have been sold at auction. One, deaccessioned from the collection of the Newark Museum, is a picture of tree leaves, which sold at Sotheby's for $1.17 million. The other, an image of a white flower in front of a dark leaf, sold at Christie's for just shy of $5 million. Here to talk with me about both these sales is Regan Upshot. Regan is an art dealer, advisor, critic, and appraiser based in New York. I first encountered him through his blog at ReganUpshotFineArt.com, where he writes colorful commentary on art and the art market. Regan, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks very much, Ben.
0: I want to start by talking about O'Keeffe and the context for these two paintings. Green Oak Leaves, the one sold by Sotheby's uh, on behalf of the Newark Museum for about $1.2 million, is 12 inches by 9 inches and depicts a cluster of leaves against a gray background, uh, possibly suggesting that the viewer is looking up at them uh, toward the sky. Um, the other painting sold by Christie's for $5 million, Autumn Leaf with White Flower, uh, is a 20-by-9-inch portrait, and the the floral subject matter is more quintessentially O'Keeffe. Now, she herself denied that any of her paintings represented female genitalia, but this painting is one of many of her works where I think it's not crazy to draw the comparison.
1: It it is a fact that flowers are the sexual organs of plants, so uh, it's not a a huge uh, leap to go from one to the other. Uh, but, you know, the the difference in price, I mean, first off, I'd point out these are really done a couple of years apart in the 20s. Uh, you mentioned that the green oak leaves is uh, about 12 by 9, and that's something that surprises many people because they see flower paintings that are, are just reproductions, and they think they must be, Twenty by thirty or whatever. You know, she did lots and lots of paintings in the eight by 10 12 by nine format. Uh, so many of them are small. Yeah, uh, they're, they're generally uh, framed. As she did not like in general big frames, and generally they just have uh, a very simple strip molding of metal around it, uh, which uh, you know conservators and curators hate because they don't really protect the uh, painting. The the one that sold for about five million had a much more fancy uh, uh, the almost shadow box uh, frame put around it, which I d- doubt that she did, but uh, mm-hmm. it's the kind of thing that uh, 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 collectors and, and museum curators like to do. I think you know that it made certainly the, the painting was was about tw- the five million dollar the flower painting was about uh, twice as big as the other, but and the frame made it look even bigger. Right. But I think the main thing there is just, you know, there are, with O'Keeffe, there are the flowers and then there's everything else. And when we think of O'Keeffe, uh, some people may think of her, uh, you know, the landscapes with a, you know, pelvic bone or, or something like that. But, but it's generally the flowers that come to mind. And, and it's no uh, surprise, and of course they're enormously popular. And it's no surprise that uh, when the U.S. Postal Service did Key stamp and this was so oh, 20 30 years ago but mm. it was one of the big red poppies and i i heard and I, I see no reason to doubt that that at that time that stamp sold more copies than any other stamp except elvis wow and, uh, you know because it, you know everybody likes them so uh they are the one the things that are sought after. But of course, she did many subjects. She did Lake George. You know, she painted in Hawaii, uh, and of course, all the desert landscapes and occasional things like a kachina doll or something like that.
0: Well, so, yeah. So let's put these pictures in some historical context because she you know, she painted both of these paintings in the nineteen twenties, uh, which was right when her career and, and her reputation were starting to skyrocket. Um, so what is it about these? Um, two paintings, and they're very different, but but what about them, and what about her work um, in general during this period was setting her apart from, from other artists of the 1920s?
1: Well, I, it, I'm going to say that they set her apart, and yet she's actually uh, not as set apart as you might think. Uh, I've spoken to the fact there was another artist, uh, the same born the same year as O'Keeffe was, Marguerite Thompson-Zorak, who was also painting and show actually earlier and showed in the famous armory show of uh of 1913 and so there were you know other modernist painters you know female modernist painters though O'Keeffe always um, uh did, said no i'm not a female i'm not a woman painter i'm a painter and she declined to be included in shows that were strictly uh women mm. But, you know, her bringing in close-ups, and I think this also is something that comes out of photography uh, at the time, this close-up focus on paintings. And and an early reviewer of her work back in the 20s said the paintings made him feel like a bee. You know, he was—he was, he was uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but to bring something in that big and just focus you on it, on the on the sepals and the the stamens and the you know filaments and all the parts of a flower uh, was something that really hadn't been done. And and in O'Keeffe's way of simplifying and and. Uh, You know, the curves, they are, they're sensual, and yes, they are sexual, even though she would deny that, uh, was something pretty new. Uh, The thing about them, though, of course, is that they are so immediately identifiable with O'Keefe that no one can paint like that, you know, Mm -hmm. anymore. If you paint a flower close up, in a slightly modernist style, you're coming, you know. You're
0: Your derivative.
1: Yeah, she, she paints like Georgia O'Keeffe. Yeah. So she really just, just, uh. She
0: cornered the market.
1: She, she, and then I think that's the other thing about O'Keeffe, uh, and, and, you know, she was, it's interesting, she was, you know, uh, You say, you know, come from a dairy farmer, but she had two other sisters who were involved in the arts. Uh, One of them, Ida O'Keefe, taught for years uh, at SUNY Cortland, uh, or what is now State University of New York at Cortland. Uh, O'Keefe basically ran her out of New York. I mean, there's there's only room for one O'Keefe in the arts. And, And... Ida has been getting some of her due in recent years, there have been uh, some shows, but O'Keefe was very uh, territorial, and of course with uh, her relationship with Stieglitz, she had a promoter of genius, and uh, the heat, without him, you know, um, this is, has nothing to say with her about her talent, but without somebody pushing you, no matter how talented you are, you're going to have a much harder time getting traction than, uh, in the art market than if you've got someone who's in your corner. So I think, uh, uh, and O'Keeffe also had a, a certain genius for what today would be called branding. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a wonderful show at the Brooklyn Museum a couple of years ago, I think it was called Becoming O'Keeffe, I can't remember, but she very consciously curated her public image. She was an excellent seamstress. She made her own clothes. Uh, they were, you know, cut in, made in lines that, that would not be weird today. I mean, they were classic, simple lines, simple colors, you know, a minimum of decoration. And that really, you know, people got an idea. I think that she's someone, you know, you, you know, that the average person, if they saw a photograph of her, then you said, who is this? I would suspect a fair number, a majority of kind of average people would be able to say, that's Georgia O'Keeffe.
0: Yeah, and there there are some really sort of... You
1: know, Marsden Hartley or Arthur Dove or or anyone like that, they wouldn't know. O'Keeffe is, you know, she was iconic. She wasn't conventionally beautiful, but the camera loved her. Yeah. And she knew how to I think maybe partly because of, the, uh, of of her working with Stieglitz she knew how to to pose for advantage
0: I was going to say I mean some of some of the most recognizable pictures of her are, are of course by Stieglitz mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. but but you know Ansel Adams later and it's fun it's it's amazing to me that even late in her life and this would be in the around oh gosh I don't know the late 70s eight, early eighties, Calvin Klein went out to New Mexico and did a photo shoot using her to uh, promote, you know, his latest where there she is, her silver hair, her black, very severe black, you know, dress with a con, just, you know, with nothing but, say, a concho belt, you know, looking out over the landscape, you know, and everybody would know, oh, that's George O'Keefe in New Mexico. I mean, meanwhile... Uh, Marguerite Zorak who married and had a couple of kids and you know she's by that time you know she's a dumpy grandmother I mean no one's you know it's inconceivable that someone would have used her but O'Keefe had a real though though she you know could be and was uh, you know uh, reclusive or, or you know putting off but that just that just encouraged people you know there she was in her home in Abiquiu and uh, so I think that with O'Keeffe, as with someone like, even like Andy Warhol, you know, the, 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 the persona is as big, really, yeah. as, as the, the, the artwork, and you really can't think of one without thinking about the other, unlike, again, Marsden Hartley or Max Weber or any other number of American modernist painters.
0: Do you think that's why the the flower pictures are so much more desirable because they're so closely identified with her personality and her brand?
1: I. So, though, though, though I, you could certainly make a case that you know those paintings she did of Ghost Ranch or an advocate where you've got a western landscape and a, a you know a, a ram skull you know there and maybe you know those 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 are you know, again you look at those and you know they're O'Keefe, but certainly the you know who doesn't like flowers? Everybody likes flowers. That's
0: a fair point. Have them there, you know, and and you have to give her credit too because
1: flowers traditionally have been kind of you know denigrated as oh well that's something ladies paint you know well-bred ladies in the victorian times would paint watercolors of flowers and, mm-hmm. and you know and that she could take a subject that was all too often just seen as the uh the amateur's uh you know province and, and to say no look at this you're not looking at it i'm going to bring you in close i'm not going to have a nice well you know uh, made flower arrangement in a vase you know, I'm going to bring you right in. So there's almost something scientific about it because I'm in there. And, of course, anyone looking at it can identify the you know the, the species of flower. But it's almost scientific in its close-up. And yet it's still so sensuous. And, uh, you know, I think that just speaks to everybody.
0: Yeah, But it's interesting. I mean, so one of the pictures we're talking about, um, this green oak leaves painting, uh, that that sold for about 1.2 million, Um you know that that's obviously not a flower picture, and um, there's a little bit of uh, controversy around it in in that it is a museum deaccession, and you know in a, in a recent episode I, I talked with the director of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, um, Timothy Rubb, about the very complicated considerations around museum deaccessions. And, and there were objections to the sale of this Georgia O'Keeffe painting, along with um, a number of other pictures that were included in the same sale. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, what are what are your thoughts about the museum's decision to, to sell that
1: picture? Uh, in general, you know, on general principle, I'm opposed to deaccessioning, uh, and I'm certainly de- opposed to deaccessioning for anything uh, except accessioning, you know, other, using the funds as, as is permitted by the Association of American Museums to to buy, you know, if you've got, and I, I don't know, I, I should have looked up, but I, you know, I don't know how many O'Keeffe's the uh, Newark Museum has, if it's got five of them, and, and you know, they, uh, okay, if this one's just going to be sitting in the basement, you know, in storage, uh, then why not let it get out and 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 be seen but i think the danger of course in the pandemic brought it home and the Ber- the whole controversy about the berkshire museums deaccessioning stuff when you start eating your seed corn so to speak when you start selling off your assets then the you know that why people come to the museum to see it then you're you're going down a very uh uh you know dangerous uh road and uh so, again, I, I don't know. I'm sure you museums are always broke in the best of times. And I'm sure that, that the Newark Museum, you know, though it, it draws from uh, northeastern New Jersey, you know, it's, it, I'm sure it's had a rough time, the pandemic. So if they've got five others, then, okay, they had to do something to, to, to keep going. But I, I would hope they would use the funds to buy uh you know, we're, and particularly since this is a work by a woman artist. I mean, there is a move these days to deaccession to acquire works by women and artists of color, and that's fine. Uh, in this case, you're getting rid of, a, of a, a work by a woman. So I hope that they would use some of the funds to buy works by, you know, other women.
0: Now, both of these sales, the, both of these pictures, you um, Sold either within or or close to within the auction estimates. Um, Do you think these were uh, fair fair prices?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I do. One thing about about you know, it's a crazy thing that I. It's very hard to explain to a civilian. You know, what's a painting worth? Well, it's worth that somebody will pay for it. Mm -hmm. It has no no practical value. So. I think that, uh, I think, you know, the auction houses, these, particularly because of the pandemic, uh, have had to be, uh, conservative with their estimates. And I certainly think that five or seven was a, was a, was for a small, you know, 12 by nine inch painting that wasn't a flower. It's very attractive, but it's just leaves. Uh, I think that was a, uh, a, a conservative and a, you know, realistic estimate and it went past that and that's great. I'm happy for them. Um, so I, you know, I, I can't, uh, I, I, I think it'd be very hard to sell, you know, uh, even the flower that sold for $44 million uh, all those years ago. that was a Jimson wheat, I believe. I, you would have a hard time kind of selling that uh, today. I mean, the market, the modernist market has largely recovered from the, uh, you know, the, the recession where everything dropped, rolled back about 30 percent at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some things have not recovered as well, uh, uh, you know, Hudson River things and Victorian genre and that kind of stuff. But modernism is good. And again, I mean, if you if you know, if you're the man in the street and you know the name of only, you know, one modernist artist, it's going to be Georgia O'Keeffe,
0: you know. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, as, as you say, there's, of course, burgeoning interest in uh, communities of artists who've been underrepresented in the past, women, uh, people of color. And Georgia O'Keeffe, it, it sounds like, was some... Um, not altogether comfortable with that designation, uh, and, and yet, you, you know, it's hard to avoid um, categorizing her in that way regardless. Um,
1: and, and, of course, these days she might push it because, I mean, I, you know, uh, In 19, if you were talking to someone in 1930 or 35, a young artist about their work, they might have discussed it in terms of like Marxist, uh, you know, economic things. And then, you know, during the abstract expressions years, you would talk about the art, you know, the the canvas is this arena in which you dance. And and then, you know, you get into postmodern. Today, any, if you talk to young artists, you know, the vast majority, if you say, what's your art about? They're going to say, my work is about gender and identity um and and so i very much think that you know if georgia were today or the or the georgia o'keeffe's of today they foreground their their gender and uh you know they would not be at all um um, you know averse to uh people finding sexual you know references uh, in their works uh
0: well, and she she, she was uh, as you've described. You know, she had a keen market sense and a self promotional sense, and and so you know maybe she would see.
1: She was also at a time when women, you know, I mean, and it's not over yet. But I mean, uh, when with, to be a woman artist, you better be tough. I mean, you're 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 there in the. Uh, in the uh, you know the, the ring with all these guys and and you know they're all going to tempted to pat you on the oh isn't she sweet you know oh nice little t- pat 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 you know to hold your own as a serious artist and say look I am worthy of of uh, you know real consideration she couldn't be she couldn't foreground her her, her femaleness she obviously never denied it but she she wasn't going to stress it.
0: Yeah, well, and and uh, clearly her relationship with Stieglitz um, is, is a very complicated part of that picture. If we were doing another podcast episode, uh, I'd, I'd want to dive deeper into that, um, but we'll, we'll save that for another time, I think. We'll be back in a minute with Reagan Upshot. Thanks for listening and for your support. There are images of these O'Keeffe paintings online at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast and on the magazine's Instagram at antiquesmag. Uh, My Instagram is at Objective Interest. If you enjoy Curious Objects and want to support our work, please take just a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. And if you have ideas or feedback for us, you can email me at CuriousObjectsPodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Next episode, I'll be speaking with interior designer Thomas Jane about the history of the use of antiques in the home. Um, And we're also coming up on the 50th episode of Curious Objects, and we'll be doing something special for that. So stay tuned. I I want to change gears and talk uh, a a bit about your career in the art world, um, which, which goes back to 1981. And you know, obviously, a, a lot of, of time this, time. business has, yes, <laughs> well, you know, uh, there there's, have been plenty of changes in the industry since then, um, but but of course, there are many things that have stayed the same. Um, you now, you, you started working for a fellow that that some listeners may know of, um, Iris Buneerman.
1: I stumbled into that. I had come to New York uh, with a wife and a baby, and... Uh looking for a job i figured i would get one in publishing cuz i had done that in chicago but when i had been a grad student at the university of chicago and one of my uh, professors called me in Ch- new york in brooklyn to say hey look iris Spanielman's second banana is leaving and and he's looking for someone so i i went to see him and uh he you know he was i he was the boot camp of the art world uh, you know people <laughs> lasted one day or Six months or stuff, but, but if you uh-huh. could cut it, if you could cut it, you got a lot of responsibility very fast. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I learned so much from him. Uh, I'm still, but the, on the other hand, the art market has changed so much since then. I mean, the transparency, the, uh, enormous, uh, uh Influx of auctions, the uh, and the, the very thin, almost invisible line now between auction house and private dealer, or
0: yeah. Well, tell tell me a little bef- before we dive full on into into the contemporary market. Um, you know, well, tell me a little more about this world that you were entering with, with Ira, and and what he, what skills he was trying to teach you.
1: Well, he, he you know he taught me many things. Uh, but, I mean, the main thing back then was that there was, you know, auctions had begun. Uh, obviously, they'd been around for years, but in the 70s, the auctions made the decision to go into the kind of what we call the retail market. Uh, when I joined Ira, for example, uh, there were beginning to be estimates, but they were in the catalog on a separate page in the, in the back of the catalog and once a year a a book would be published of auction sales but it had no illustration to just say you know joe smith landscape 12 by 14 four thousand dollars so auctioneers or rather dealers had so much inside knowledge that the average you know collector didn't have uh and also, uh, there was, you know, the, uh, the attics of America were not empty. I mean, people came in, uh, Ira ran big ads in Antiques Magazine, uh, that said, we will pay over a million dollars for highly important paintings by, you know, Albert Bierstadt and, mm-hmm. you know, Cropsey and Church and Cole and all these people. So we got calls, you know, every day and people would bring things in. And so it was a, we had the knowledge, you know, uh, and the average person didn't really have it. But auctions became much more, uh, you know, out. they, they stressed themselves. They, they began to publish the, uh, the estimates and put them right on the wall there. They became much more user-friendly, and they ceased to be a, a wholesale outlet to the trade, and they became, you know, they became retail. So it became you know back when I was started, dealers owned most of their inventory. They would buy it and then you know mark it up and, and sell it. Over the years, that became harder and harder because they couldn't buy it at auction anymore because all your clients are, are there bidding against you, so you can't you, you know you can't take it there. And uh, you know again the the number of paintings still being out there decreased. And uh, so I mean nowadays most dealers in older art. Most of what they own is, is, is consigned from someone. They, it's very hard to buy it and, and, to hold inventory. Uh, you know, I mean, back, I, a friend of mine who was with Kennedy Gallery, who knew Kennedy Galleries in the old days, he said back then, you know, they had inventory equal to like seven years expenses. I mean, nowadays, I'd be amazed for dealers to own inventory that was even two years. Mm. With expenses, I mean, it's just it it has changed, and of course, again, all the databases and and the the you know fact that you can send a uh, an image and just click and send, it's completely changed.
0: Well, okay, so um, you know, you've mentioned that uh, auctioneers are now acting much more like retailers. Uh, Of course, they have. Full-on customer management departments and and vast marketing budgets. Um, that obviously, in in some ways, that puts the squeeze on dealers um, because they have new competition. And in the decorative arts world where I work, you know, I'd argue that it's had an upward pressure on prices, but at the same time, a downward pressure on on quality and connoisseurship. Um, but you know, of course, I'm biased as a dealer, um, and and to be fair, so are you, uh, but. but but that's okay. Um, what you know? What I mean? Would you agree with that assessment? Is that um, happening in the painting world too?
1: You know, the auction houses uh, have put an upward pressure on prices for masterpieces, and a downward you know, and, and this is the case in all antiques. I think you know the the, the masterpieces can still bring real money. The um, um, lesser stuff, you know. It's hard because young people generally, you know, they, what we call brown furniture, you know, the Chippendales and the Heppelwhites and the Queen Anne and stuff like that. The days when uh, young people, you made executive vice president and you went out and bought a uh, a set of um, you know Georgian dining room to 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 mark your new status you know those are those days are gone and people i think also we talk about connoisseurship there is much less in the terms of connoisseurship now we are into kind of lifestyle auctions where you know yes they might buy a, a George o'keefe but they would also buy you know lebron james's game winning tennis shoes i mean you know i'm, I'm i say it only slightly facetiously. Uh, and there's no point in. I'm not putting it down. I mean, the old days. You know, we love the old collectors, the people who really were passionate and and who studied and and even with modest budgets were able to, you know, to study and to, to take their time and to trade up and to, and knew everything about their the, the painting and the field and and there are still a few people who do that. But it's generally now it's more okay. We'll take one from column A, one from column B. Welcome, Column C. It's just different, and there's no point in complaining about it because it's—it's it's, you know the tide is coming in. Uh, it'll go out at some point, but but I don't know when.
0: Well, and as you mentioned, you know, of course there's also the matter of price transparency. Um, you know, it used to be well the, the way that our firm and many firms in our uh, you know antique silver dealing uh, field used to operate is. You you could go, and here I'm talking about 50-plus years ago, uh, but you could go down to uh, Park Burnett and look at all the pieces of silver that are coming up in the sale. And you could pick out, based on your connoisseurial knowledge, the pieces that you thought were the best 5 or 10 or 15 pieces in the sale. You would bid what you needed to buy them. It didn't really matter particularly how much. Uh, you'd bring them back to the showroom, and you'd mark them up 50% to 100%, maybe more if it was a particularly good find. Um, And you'd sit around in your shop until somebody came around and bought it. And that was a pretty good business model, Uh, and it, it made a lot of people a lot of money. Now, that's not quite so easy when what you paid for the object is published on the internet, and the first thing anybody does when they look at it is to Google it and they know exactly what profit margin you're making now. You know, it's, God
1: you should make more than <laughs>
0: well. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, of course, there are two sides to the coin. And on the one hand, you know, it does seem sort of crazy to say, "Well, there shouldn't be transparency. You shouldn't know how much this piece sold for in a sale. You know, that should be secret information to the trade, and we should be able to charge whatever prices we want." On the other hand you know, it can create these strange incentives where, you know, often these days I speak with my colleagues and with our colleagues in other businesses in, in the field and talk about how we would rather buy something for a higher price sometimes at auction because it sends a signal that it's a more valuable object. Um, and if it sells for too little, you know, it used to be you would get excited that you you had made a good a great find that nobody else had recognized. But now when somebody Googles it and finds out it sold for much less than what you think it's worth, they get suspicious.
1: Well, I, I think I always quoted Alfred Krauss, the book dealer. He, used to was, was ask, he was being interviewed once and someone was asking him about a, a book or a you know, series of books that he had bought at auctions and sold, you know, like six months later for three times as much. And Krauss said, when I find a dollar lying on the sidewalk... I don't sell it for 50 cents (laughs) and you know I mean it's part of it say look man I saw it I recognize it and I'm you know and you've got to convince people that your eye your expertise is worth it but there's kind of and one thing about buying it and owning it you know at least you've got your uh, you've got your it's yours you know I mean you can wait if you've got the, the, the wherewithal to wait you can just wait. A story that Ira used to tell, or tell, he was once, uh, talking with another dealer. They wanted to buy a painting together by Theodore Robinson, and, uh, it was in a private collection, and the dealer was saying, well, Ira, what do you think we can, what do you think we can ask for this? And uh, Ira said, well, if we buy it for 250,000, we'll ask 350,000. If we buy it for 150,000, we'll ask 500,000. <laughs> and what he was saying was, if we get this right, if we buy this, you know, if we're into this painting right, then we'll just wait because it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And someone eventually is going to, you know, come and recognize this. And uh,
0: and meanwhile, you don't have quite as much capital tied up in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you with not as much capital, you can afford to wait. Uh, but I think you know, you know, things change. I you know, certainly back in the early eighties when. Inflation was going crazy, and stuff. You know, every month you didn't sell something was costing you. It was costing you X dollars. You
0: know, so you you, you had to turn it. Yeah. So as as we look toward the future of art collecting, I'm going to ask you to to be an oracle for us here. Um, what is it that makes you? Let, let me phrase it in an optimistic way. What makes you most excited as you as you imagine the coming? I don't know, five, 10, 20 years of, uh, of art collecting?
1: I think, hmm, good question. You know, when it's not gonna go back. I think it'll again, continue to be uh, a much more mixed market where people instead of collecting deeply in one field will uh, travel, you know, quickly across uh, many and, and that you can, Complain about you know shortened attention spans or whatever, but that's going to continue to happen. But I think there is still always going to be a place for that magical thing with, that we call an artwork. I, you can talk about NFTs and you know all this stuff and that fine, great. But you know I, I, I've always said you know if you look at a photo, if you Google the Mona Lisa in the Louvre and you can look up photos and there you know there's the the painting on the wall and there are all these uh, people you know pushing and shoving trying to get photos selfies of themselves with the with the Mona Lisa and there's a couple of guards standing there and I said what if the guard were to say to those people, Oh, oh well actually this isn't the Mona Lisa is too valuable to be seen, so we've got it in the basement in a bomb proof vault. But we had experts, you know, create an exact replica. And mm-hmm. the world's greatest experts in a Leonardo da Vinci standing where you're standing would be unable to tell the difference. And we put it in the original frame behind its glass. Right. So it's the same exact experience. I mean, you know, you're seeing exactly the same thing would the people stay and look no of course they you know this this magic with which we invest uh, objects it's crazy you know it's insane and yet i think that will continue so a great painting you know will continue to be a, a great painting and there will be people i mean there's always people playing with the market and people trying to you know goose this artist and that artist and but you know, uh, sentimental as it may sound, or naive as it may sound, I think in the end, quality, quality will come out. Something well made, and uh, uh, that you know that will last. Someone will like that, and someone will want that. And prices may go up, or they may come down. But if you buy what you really like, then. You're golden, you know. You'll always love it, and that's that. Or if you if you don't love it, then if it's good, you, you'll sell it in a few years and, and, and find something else that you love. But but I think that 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 desire to own something beautiful will stay. And uh,
0: so you're saying we we may be all crazy and irrational, but we're going to keep being crazy and irrational. So it's kind of okay.
1: Always, you know, since Neanderthal. People begin collecting pretty rocks to put on their, you know, I mean, that's in us. That's in our DNA, really. And uh, that will stay.
0: Well, Reagan Upshaw, thanks so much for, for your time. Is there, is there anything else you want to get off your chest while I, while I got you here?
1: No, no. I mean, I'm just, just buy what you like. Buy what you like and love it. That's all.
0: Well, you heard it here. Thanks, Reagan. Thanks Ben. Bye bye. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with Thomas Jane. Very much looking forward to that. In the meantime, today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delatti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller.